Well, we spent the last month looking in depth at some themes and some ideas around Isaiah and behind Isaiah. Uh, last, uh, two weeks ago, a few weeks ago, we looked at the covenant promise of God to his people, beginning with Abraham. We saw that that idea and theme of covenant is so very important to the background of Isaiah. Last week, we looked at the law, and we talked about the fact that while we are not under the Mosaic law any longer, we still operate by a law that governs us, and that is the law of love, the law of liberty. And the reason I give you these things, and the reason I do spend so much time in the background, is because I, I want you guys to understand that when we read the Bible, we have to always first and foremost read it within the context of the overall story. If you're a new believer and you don't understand how to pull things out of the Bible, my suggestion is just read. Read the story of God over and over and over and over and over and over, get my point, and over and over and over again. And keep reading it and keep understanding it. Don't pause, just read. Read as fast as you can and do it over and over. And then slowly but surely you'll start to catch things. And you'll start to understand the themes and the things that the authors are trying to get across to you because the true author, the Holy Spirit, will be in the midst of what you're doing and will help you to slow down and start to pull things out. So just read. And so we are looking at the story of God, and today I'm going to do that again. I'm going to paint an overview, a story, very quickly in a number of books to give you even more background as you read Isaiah. Last week, we looked at that law. We realized that the Israelites were a people governed by their God. They were what you would call a theocracy. Everybody say theocracy. A democracy is governed by the people. A theocracy is governed by God, theo, God. And so we start off today where we left off last week in Deuteronomy. We spent a ton of time, and we were looking at the end of basically where the Israelites go into the land to possess it. And in Deuteronomy 4, it gives us an understanding, we read this last week, of why the law was given to the people of Israel. Let's look at verse 5 of chapter 4. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me. This is Moses speaking that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, meaning those that surround them, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God, and the name there in the Hebrew is Yahweh, is to us whenever we call upon him. And what great great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. And so we see, even in this one section, The idea that we've been trying to paint as we go into Isaiah, this. Go ahead and go to the next slide there for me. A king ruling a people. And this is what a kingdom is. When we talk about the word kingdom in Christianity, this is what we mean. A king ruling a people. Now, the other idea that we have to understand, and this is why we've been going through these pieces, is that a king is a king by covenant. He has entered into a covenant with his people to provide a benevolent reign to them, 
And they understand that what's required of them is to be ruled by the law of that king. And because of that, as an outcome of that, they're to be a people that bear his image to the world. And as we covered in depth last week and the week before and the two weeks before that, we are ruled by our King of King and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, ruled by his law of love and mercy and graciousness. The Bible uses the phrase righteousness and justice over and over again. And so then we take that and we respond to it and we become a people that are his image bearers to the world. We show his character to those around us. See, through the work of Moses, God gave the Israelites these covenant promises and the law attached to them that protected them in the midst of their covenant. And if you remember correctly, that law was not passed down by the courts of Israel, but within the family by parents to their children. It was the job of the fathers to pass on down the knowledge of God, the covenant, the law, the character of God to their offspring. You guys remember this verse? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. This is called the great Shema, or the idea is the great hear. And the word hear in Hebrew very much means hear, but also apply, obey. They would never say hear unless they meant, no, you need to listen, but then actually do it. We in Western culture, we like to hear. Oh, that's, that's a good word, pastor. And then we go out the door and it leaves our mind. Now, I want to ask you really quickly, fathers specifically in the congregation, how many of us in here are teaching this diligently to our children? How many of our children, if I went up to our kids in the kids' wing and started asking, any of you know what the greatest command is in the Bible? How many of them would say, this is? And they would repeat it. This is a conviction to me. It's one that I've started to teach my kids on top of the memory verse that we give the kids in the kids' wing because I realize the one thing in the whole Bible that I am called to teach my children as a father is there is one God, and he is our God in relationship. And my response and our kids' response is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, and all our soul. And so we have to realize that this is what we're to teach, and this is what the model of Israel was to be, governed by a king, but then the parents passing it on to their kids. See, the model of the king was to lead the people in following the law. The king would rule not just by an iron fist, but by an example and by teaching so he could bring about the righteousness and justice of the people around them. But God, through Moses, foretold, as we'll talk about later on today, that the people would become faithless. God would remain faithful in spite of this, but the people would become faithless. We are told that the people would reject the reign of their king. They would reject the theocracy, and they would make rules for themselves. And this is what happened through the rest of the story on into Isaiah is that the people cried out and said, we don't want to be governed by the law of God. We don't want to be in covenant with him. We don't want to be responsible for bearing his image to the world. And it got to a point in the book of Judges where it says this, in those days there was no king in Israel. Not only did they not have God, they had no king whatsoever. And so everyone did 
what was right in his own eyes. This is a commentary on our day, very much so. Even in the church, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. There is no submission to authority. There is simply, my opinion is king. Rather than repent, the people eventually cried out for a king. They said, we're not going to go back to having God as a king. We want an earthly king, one that they could see and touch and manipulate. The people wanted a Hillary or a Donald. They wanted someone who was going to be the one that they could stake their claim on. And the reality is, is when they did this, God saw it, and this is what he said. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. When we put our hopes in a human person, And we say, this is the one who will lead us well. We are going to be ashamed and destroyed because they will never lead us well. And so God gives the people over to their own desires and gives them a king. He gives them a tall king. Quite humble and handsome. At least I got the tall going for me, right? And this guy, Saul, he steps up and he starts to be the king. And he was actually quite humble if you read the story when he started. He is the best of the best. But from him on, the second the people put their faith in anything other than God, we see the failure of mankind's rule. And this is the story of the kings of Judah. You can write this down. The story of Judah's kings. The good, the bad, and the crumbling You see, we as Westerners, we love to put things in rows or columns. Are they good or are they bad? We don't even have this idea of maybe they're in between. Maybe there's movement as they go. And so let's do a little bit of audience interactive time. I'm going to go through a number of scriptures as I already have here. And the reason I'm doing it like this today, you know, I'm not a fan of putting scripture up on screen. I'd rather have you look at it. But just for the sake of time to paint this story, you can write down the addresses of the verses we go to. But I I want you to interact with me for a second. Saul, was he a good king or a bad king? I don't know. Good, bad, crumbling? Well, he might have started good. Some people might say that. My suggestion to you is that the Bible is very specific. He was a bad king. When we look at the story of of, uh, Saul, we see that he comes to this place where he's about to engage in war on behalf of God. And rather than waiting on God, trusting on God, and waiting on God's priests to come and do the sacrifice, because guess what? That was the law of what they were supposed to do. He decides that he is going to be the one that takes it upon himself to make the rules. And he says, I'm going to do what I think is right, and I'm going to do the sacrifice. So Samuel shows up right as he's about to do the sacrifice. And Samuel says to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. What the text says, guys, is that God was going to use Saul, and Saul chose to not be used. See that? God wanted to use Saul, but now he says, your kingdom shall not continue. 
The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you, Saul, have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Pretty harsh words to hear. So the Bible is clear. Saul was a bad king. And you might say, well, God ordained against him. It says that God took his spirit from him. No, I would submit to you that piece by piece by piece, God gave free will to Saul and he chose to harden his heart, his heart against the will of God and the law of God. And slowly but surely, the Lord allowed him to have his way. And he eventually did withdraw his spirit because at that point he knew Saul was so hardened against relationship with him that he said, fine, I'll let you have your way. So God, by his grace, raises up a good king to restore the people. You guys know who this is. This is King David. Was David a good king or a bad king? Hans, this is a trick question. Let's see. He was a murderer an adulterer. I'm going to go with, survey says bad. No, in reality, what the Bible says is that he was the best. Now, why was he the best? Because as I would, you know, we could go through the whole story, but Psalm 51 is David's psalm of repentance. He is a man who made massive failures like any one of us in this room, but yet at the end of the day, this is how he's remembered. 1 Kings 15.5, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. I wonder what my sentence is going to be like in heaven. Hopefully it says, and Hans did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except for that one time, that second time, that third time, on down the line, that thousandth time. No, what is it that God requires of us? Not perfection. He requires repentance. He requires a constant growth, a trajectory, as I said last time, following after God. From David, he has, with Bathsheba in that whole incident, when he's adulterous, he loses that child, but eventually has a child with Bathsheba named Solomon. Was Solomon a good king or a bad king? Hans, these are all bad questions. See, the reality is is that Solomon was a crumbling king. He is one that is very hard for us to grasp because he began so well. He finished the temple of his father David's desires and was leading the people in righteousness. Look at what this says uh, here in 2 Chronicles 7.3. When all the people of Israel saw that fire had come down, this is what happened when they dedicated the temple, and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Wow, what an amazing thing. They bowed down on the pavement and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Does this show a king that's leading his people in the truth? Absolutely. A people that cry out with the truth that God is good and his steadfast love endures forever. They're being led by a good king. See, the enemy, as I've taught you, tried to take that away and say, should we really trust God? He's a bad God. We, we shouldn't trust him. But a people that cry out the truth, they're being led by a good king. And he was doing so well at following the law of God and covenant with God that even as far away as Sheba, what we now know as Ethiopia, Yemen, and Saudi Arabia, the queen comes and she visits him because everyone knows how wise Solomon is. And this is what she says, 
in 2 Chronicles 9.8. Blessed be the Lord your God. And in the Hebrew, guys, it says, blessed be Yahweh. A pagan who worships a different God comes and says, I'm going to bless the name of your God. Why? He has delighted in you and set you on his throne as king for the Lord your God because your God loved Israel and would establish them forever. He has made you king over them that you may do what? Execute justice and righteousness. Guys, this is everything we've been talking about. Now you see why the background is so important. God was in covenant with Israel. They were responding in the law of love, following his commands, and bearing his image of justice and righteousness to the world. So much so that the world was coming and saying, let's go check this out. This is the kingdom of God. But God warned him to follow the ways of David and not pursue his own desires, but to follow the commands of God. And if he had done that, he would have been safe. Why? Well, because he spoke to him in person, but also, you're still here in Deuteronomy. Turn to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17. And I want you to see this section of Scripture that most people don't ever recall, probably because it's in Deuteronomy. And look at Deuteronomy 17, 14. This is the law for the kings. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. See, God knew they were going to do this. He then says in Deuteronomy 17, 15, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. See, that's okay because God is still the one running things. You have an ambassador of God as your king, but God's still the one running things. He says, you may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Why is that? Because he'd lead you you after a different God. Only he must not acquire, and he gives him three things here that kings are not supposed to do, ever. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not require many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive gold. Or silver. God so foreknew the hearts of men that he said to the leaders, hey, stay away from money, sex, and power. Now you guys tell me, you watch the news, evangelists, pastors who fall, why do they fall? Money, sex, or power. He goes on to say, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." So God says, stay away from those three things, and in, in, in the place of those, sit down and write out, and the word for this law is Torah. He was to write out the first five books of the Bible. Why? Because writing means memorization. The leader was to memorize the Pentateuch, was to memorize the first five books of the Bible. Why? Because in memorizing the law of God, it would have kept him safe from going after the very things that would draw his heart away from God. And I ask you, how many of us in here hear anything beyond Genesis, maybe part of Exodus, and we go, flatline. I got to read Leviticus? Numbers? Deuteronomy? 
you got to be kidding me. That's the law. We follow grace. Yes, we do. We're saved by grace, but we're still under the God, the King, that gives us a law that protects us. Not the Mosaic law, but a law of what it is to follow Him. And Solomon slowly but surely forgot the ways of God, and I would submit to you is because he put this section of the Bible on the back burner. He didn't look at it. He didn't study it. It wasn't important to him. He couldn't glean anything out of it. It's too high-minded for him. And slowly but surely, here's what happens. Turn with me to 1 Kings. 1 Kings 11. Now, before I read this, remember that in those days, kings, in order to gain power and in order to gain wealth and supposedly peace, they would marry other women from other kingdoms. They would marry the daughters of other kings, and they would go into treaties with those foreign kingdoms. But remember, God said, stay away from that. Don't align yourself with anyone else other than me. It says chapter 11 of 1 Kings, verse 1, now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Do we see a problem here? Not only does it say many, not one, it says foreign. Oh, yeah, you got to stay away from those foreigners. No, he's not a racist here. What he's saying is women who worshiped other gods. He says, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, that was his first wife, supposedly, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. Oh, that's so sweet. Why? That's romantic. Why? What did that do to him? Guys, I, I, I say it time and time again to our young adults group. The number one thing I've seen that draw really passionate men and women away from the Lord, is who they date and marry. If, you're, if you're, the person you're dating says, no, it's okay, I know God's command is to enter into a vow, a covenant before we have sex, but we love each other, let's just have sex anyway. They're drawing your heart after a false god. Stay away from them, run from them. They're drawing your heart after Satan. <gasps> That's pretty harsh. Guys, all other gods besides the one true living God is the effects of Satan. We have to be careful who we align ourselves with. See, what these gods did is they started to get him to worship other gods. Look at what it says in verse 5. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Well, what is it that these gods did that was so bad? You guys have heard me use this example before. Moloch, for example, in order to have a, a nice house, what you would do is you would start to construct your house. You'd get as far as the foundation. You'd slit the throat of your child, and you'd put your child into the foundation in order for Moloch to bless your home. Hans, that can't be real. That is absolutely real. You know what you'd do to worship Ashtaroth? You'd leave the wife of your youth at home, and you'd go have sex with temple prostitutes. Hans, that can't be right. It is. These are what these gods required, is to break the commands of God. And because he did these things, he became a crumbling king. And it's this point, because of his evil and because of his sin, that God rips the kingdom in two and says, guys, you're going to have to deal with your own sin. And the cycle of the kings of Judah continue, the good, the bad, the crumbling. Nine kings later, watching the good, the bad, the crumbling, you can go read it on your own. 
we come to the days of Isaiah. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, the reason I go so deep into this understanding of the kings is that they had decided that they were going to follow a legacy, but it was not the legacy of their father God. It was the legacy of their own desires and wants. And so even with these gods, we see that same thing occurring. And you're going to see repeated over and over as you go through First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, in the discussion of the kings, there's going to be similar language. And when the Bible uses repetitive language, it's trying to get you to figure out a theme. So let me go through the verses that talk about these few kings here. We're just going to go through the first three here. We'll talk about Ahaz and Hezekiah a ton as we go through Isaiah. But here's what it said for Uzziah or Uzziah, okay? It says this. Whoops. It says, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Notice the connection to his father giving him his offspring teaching. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. Oh, cool. So they had skyscrapers in those days? No. High places is where you would go to worship pagan gods. In the midst of Israel, it's where you would go. It would be like if someone came here and created a huge statue to Satan and started bowing down to it in the middle of our congregation. We'd all probably have a problem with that. Why? Because it's an enemy of the God we serve, Jesus Christ. So he left these places of worship to the enemies. In other words, he was apathetic. He didn't truly do everything that he was supposed to because the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. In my opinion, and I think in the Bible, is a crumbling king. Even though he was good in one sense, he didn't fully fulfill what the Lord asked of him. Jotham is the next one. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed. Notice that he followed the example of his parent. Parents, our children will never, ever be more faithful than we are. I run into so many parents. Their kids are older, middle-aged. Yeah, they just don't go to church that often. I'm really worried about their faith. How often did you go to church, parent? Did you make it a priority? How often did you talk about Scripture in your home? Did you make it a priority? They will follow us, and quite often, they will go even below where we were So we must set the bar high for ourselves as parents. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. But he built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Spent a little bit of time on the temple, but didn't remove the things that were against God. Another struggling, crumbling king. Now Ahaz, we get to him, and he's a nightmare, as we'll see. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. All of you 20-year-olds think, that's cool. All of us who are older go, uh-oh. <laughs> and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as God as his father David had done, but he uh, walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Oof. He even burned his son as an offering. See, that's what I was talking about, Molech. 
according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. I would submit to you that we as parents in the Christian faith probably do not sacrifice our children on the offering tables, but we definitely do at the hands of social media and at the hands of movies, at the hands of music, and on the altar of video games. Oh, they're playing video games? No big deal. Look and see what's coming into your home through those methods. See, as you study the story of kings, you will see with each king, we find three statements in here. The first statement we find is, whose example and teaching did they follow? One of the biggest things I want to impress for parents in here is, guys, your children will not follow your example unless they know that you love them and have relationship with them. They just won't. The number one priority we have as parents is to let our children know that we love them so that they will know that what we speak is wisdom for them, not against them. I find in myself and so many other parents, we spend so much time criticizing. And I don't mean that we should never discipline. I do mean that when we discipline, remember to give them an example and a teaching of what they should do. I find myself and other parents so often saying, stop that! Great. They're a five-year-old full of energy. What do you want them to start? Because they will start something else. So how do we direct them and turn them to follow what they need to do? Whose example and teaching did they follow? We see this about the kings. Secondly, we see, who did they align with relationally? We're going to see over and over again statements about kings where they aligned with people that were not followers of Yahweh. Kingdoms who totally sacrificed to other gods. And lastly, we will see the question of who did they worship spiritually and materially. You will see statements about kings that they started to worship certain gods, and they would bring riches back into the, kings, or into the temple of God, or they would give riches away. You see very quickly with the kings who they worshiped by what they did materially and also who they proclaimed they had loyalty to. These are the three things, the three themes that are stated throughout the discussion of the kings. Whose example and teaching did they follow? Who did they align with relationally? And who did they worship spiritually and materially? And it was onto this scene that Isaiah steps to proclaim who they should be following, who they should be worshiping and aligning with. And his name, Isaiah, is a great indicator of what he would say. His name in Hebrew is Yeshayahu. Everybody say Yeshayahu. Yeshayahu. And it means Yah has saved. Yahweh, the Lord, has saved. We can just call him Isaiah in the English, but it still means the same thing. Yahweh has saved us. In other words, Yahweh should be the one whose example and teaching you all follow as parents giving it on down to your children. You should align with only God and his people. That doesn't mean you only relate to those people, but as far as your heart and your emotions and your mind and your wisdom is, is concerned, you're aligning only with the followers of God. And who do you worship spiritually and materially? That's an easy one, Yahweh. And so we step into Isaiah, seeing Isaiah telling the people of Israel or of Judah that they should be doing this. Now, the first five chapters of Isaiah is what we call a preface. It's, it's not even really the full prophecy yet. It will begin in chapter 6, but he's going to give us an intro. So I've given you an intro to the intro. And now here we go in verse 2. Look at what Isaiah says. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. 
The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Now, we read this and we immediately get that Isaiah's probably not too happy, right? This is not a good start. If I walked through the door and Kelly said, Hear, O heavens and O earth, I am against thee, I would probably go, I should probably start the day over here. This is not good, right? But see, what he's referencing here is the fact that they had turned aside from the very God they knew and the law that they knew. Turn with me back to Deuteronomy and keep your finger in Isaiah. We're going to come right back and look at Deuteronomy 32. Moses, as he's finishing his last speech to the people of Israel and making his final will and testament, his final point to them, look at what he says in Deuteronomy 32 and see how much it mimics what is being said in Isaiah. Or, I should say Isaiah mimics what he says. He says in Deuteronomy 32, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. Oh, good. He's going to talk to us like dew on the grass. Okay, this is going to be good. Thanks, Moses. Well, just keep going. Look at verse 15. Okay, just for sake of time, I'm going to skip ahead. But Jeshurun, another name for Israel, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods. See, that's where I get the idea that other gods are satanic. To gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Ouch. Look at verse 28. For they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. These same things are what Isaiah calls to mind. And the Israelites, being a people that were supposed to be raised in the Torah, if they had not completely forgotten it, their mind would have been sparked with the fact that we are the very people Moses was talking about. We thought we were the faithful ones, but God has said through Moses that we would be the ones that forsake him, and here we are. And if you look at my life, they would have said, we would understand that we are the ones that are truly by our actions forsaking God. The heavens and the earth are witnesses to their rebellion against their true father. The Israelites knew their identity as children of God. And this was always based out of the fact that God was their protector. He was their, the one that would watch over them, the one that would comfort them and redeem them. In Exodus 4, God tells Moses, Say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. The idea of sonship for the Israelites, being a child of God, was always framed in the context of redemption. 
And for us as Christians, it's, this, it's the same thing. We have been redeemed from our sin by the blood of Jesus because God is our protector through mercy and grace, not of anything we've done. And Isaiah starts to use amazing language. He will paint so many pictures throughout this book for us. The first thing he's saying here is that the people, the children of God, became so blessed that they believed they no longer needed the Father. As we grow, as we become wealthy, we decide we are the ones that can do everything. We'll cry out to God when it gets really bad, but for the most part, I am a self-made man. And this is what Isaiah is explaining with such stark images. The ox and the donkey, the two most rebellious of animals, pale in comparison to the rebellion of the people. It's so bad that they no longer, end of verse 3, they no longer know God. The word there in the Hebrew means know relationally. It's the same word used for when a husband and wife are intimate. And he says they do not understand. In other words, they have lost all understanding of the heart of God. And he goes on to call them the offspring of evildoers. Remember Genesis 3? We just covered it a few weeks ago. God said to Adam and Eve, he said, the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the offspring of the serpent. And the offspring of the serpent will bite at the heel of the offspring of the woman. Isaiah is saying here, you guys, you're not the offspring of Yahweh. What option does that leave? Not a good one. Now hopefully you're sitting quiet because this is heavy on your heart. It is heavy. It's heavy on my heart, on yours. Why? Because this was spoken to God's people. This was spoken to God's people to remind them who they need to be following. Because really, in reality, what had happened is by their actions, they had become estranged. And again, this word here means not only had the people turned away, they had turned their back to God. By their very action of not following in his ways and living as he had called them to, they had become estranged from the God that had saved them. If we are honest, there are so many ways in my own life I have turned my back on God. I have made laws to suit myself. I have removed myself from his reign and said, I am the one that will decide what to do. I'm supposed to enter into covenant commitment with people in my church? No, I like being an introvert. I'm supposed to have vulnerable conversations with people that hurt me because Matthew 18 tells me to? I don't like doing that. That's uncomfortable. I'm supposed to love my wife even when she annoys me and vice versa? No, I don't like that. I'm supposed to submit to the elders of our church because that's what the Bible calls us to do in wisdom? Yeah, I don't really like, like that. I don't, I don't, if the elders don't say what I like, I'm going to go somewhere else. We become people who by our actions rebel against God's word. And so Isaiah stops here and he cries out to the people and he says, verse 5, why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. This is like our phrase from soup to nuts, A to Z. He's saying the entire body is broken. It says, but bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. 
Now we, because of our English, we look at this and we say, oh, he's talking about sickness here. But in reality, this imagery is not of sickness, but of someone being flogged, whipped within an inch of their life, yet asking for more. The word sores here harkens to the stripes that are spoken of of Jesus in Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, those are, that's the same word there, his wounds we are healed. A wonderful scholar on the book of Isaiah, J. Alec Moiter, he just died recently in uh, August. He said, "Why? Uh, this is what Isaiah is saying. Why, seeing that you will be beaten again, do you rebel again? Sin is not only unreasonable, but also unreasoning. Unable to draw proper conclusions and make appropriate responses. I don't know if you guys saw the most recent news article about yet another uh, police involvement. Uh, but it was the, a woman police officer, and she had a, a, a guy who was ho- hopped up on PCP, and he was trying to beat her to death. And she said to her chief when she was in the hospital, I didn't pull out my gun because I didn't want social backlash. I didn't want people to start thinking badly about us, so I was willing to take it. And he almost beat her to death. And the video shows the next officer coming in with a taser and tasing this man over and over and over again. But because he was high on PCP, he kept striking at them, and it didn't even make a dent. This is the picture of what Isaiah is talking about. Even though you get tased again, you still rebel. Why? Even though life is broken and you know that the things that you're doing are not leading to righteousness and justice, you still rebel. Why? And Isaiah is crying out to the people to repent. And he says that the result is that they're broken because of it. I want to ask you a question, especially to the men. See, the reality is this. Judah had forsaken the example and teaching of their father God. They had forsaken what their father had told them, and they had given up the reality that they were teaching their children an example as well. If only I had understood this in my earlier years. Because quite honestly, I'm going to have a lot of hard conversations with my children in which I will have to tell them the truth of who their father is. And in reality, the only reason they have the father they do is by the grace of Jesus Christ. Left to my own devices, I am sick and twisted and broken. And I pray that for the rest of my time as their father, I will be able to impart wisdom to them on behalf of God not out of my own wisdom, but out of God's. And so men of mission especially, but all of us, it doesn't matter if you're single, you're still an example to the children of this church. We have 90 children back there who are learning one of two directions in life. And so I ask us, what is the example in teaching that we are passing on to our children? This is the reason that we give take-home sheets with memory verses and ideas of how to incorporate teaching into your home is because we want this church to be known not only for what the parents learn, but for what the children learn. We do not send them back there in order to send them to the far reaches of Siberia so we can all get a break. We send them back there to learn about the character of Jesus so that in 18 years, this church is passionate for God with adults that have been grounded upon the faith of Jesus Christ. Are we adding to that or detracting from it? What is the example in teaching that we are passing on to the children of this church? Again, it doesn't matter if you're single or don't have kids. You are an example. 
Just look around during worship. Why is it that the children in this church do not raise their hands during worship? Because you guys don't. We are not Pentecostal by any stretch of the imagination. Why is it that your children don't sing, dads? Uh, I'm just not a singer. Nobody wants to hear my voice. God does. God does. Why is it that my child never reads their Bible? Do they ever see you reading their Bible? I have my private devotion. No, see them reading the Bible. I love that we have iPads and iPhones, guys. Get a Bible and read it in front of your children. Why? Because then the rest of their life, they're going to remember their father was a man of the word. These are small examples. Hans, you're being so mean today. No, guys, I love you so much that I'm trying to do what Isaiah is doing, which is begging all of us to continue in righteousness of God if we're there or to repent and follow the righteousness of God if we're not. Secondly, second big point is this. Judah's alignment with enemies of God left them devastated. Judah's alignment with enemies of God had left them devastated. See, rather than being a hammer against a nail, one that would impact the world on behalf of God, they became the nail that was impacted by the world. They would align with people that would draw them in to do things. Uh, Young ladies in here, I'm going to be really honest with you. If you are dating or with a man that is trying to get you to have sex with them before they have given you the covenant of marriage, run from them. They do not have your best interest at heart at all. Run from them as fast as you possibly can. Kelly, can I get an amen? Nice and loud, honey. (laughs) I was that guy to her. She should have run from me as fast. Well, Hans, your marriage worked out by the sheer miraculous grace of God. That woman did not run from me. She should have. And ladies, you should run from any man that does not vow to you in covenant faithfulness before he takes your body. Judah's alignment with enemies of God left them devastated. Look at verse 7. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field. That's definitely not applicable to today. Don't even know what that's talking about like a besieged city. Now, what he's saying here is this. It's kind of like in the Northwest, if you go to a duck blind that's left out when it's not duck season, many of you get this, right? You see threadbare cloth hanging over it. You see it's teetering, about to fall over because nobody's paid attention to it since duck season. This is what he's saying. It's past cucumber season, but the tent that they built, it's sun bleached, it's threadbare, it's about to fall apart. And Isaiah is saying to Judah, this is what your country looks like. Because you've aligned with those that are not Father God. And then he continues, he says, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. The fact that there is a remnant of hope left is only due to God's faithfulness. But the reality is, is that their alignment with the enemies of God had left them devastated. Now the last thing, that Isaiah accuses them of is is a section that we've covered a number of times in the last month. And this is the third accusation he has against uh, Judah. Judah's hypocritical religion was only proving their guilt. Write that one down. Judah's hypocritical religion was only proving 
their guilt. You guys know how this goes. Your your parents, right? The first time you say something to a child, it's usually after they did something wrong, right? Yeah, you really shouldn't uh, take that pink highlighter and rub it all over your face. It's probably not a good idea, kiddo, right? Well, are you going to hold them responsible? Are you going to punish them for their pink highlighter all over their face? And this is not a real situation, right? I mean, this has never happened in our house, okay? No, you don't hold them responsible for that because you're teaching them something new. Without the law, there is no sin. And so the next time they grab the highlighter and they look at you and they hold it out and they take the cap off right in front of you, and you say, choices, make a good choice with that, and they go, Now what do you do? You say, oh, now i got to hold you accountable. See, knowing the truth actually holds you the most accountable. The Bible says, I would that not many of you be teachers because you'll be held to the highest account. All of us are going to stand before Jesus, and guess who's going to be held to the highest standard? This guy. And secondly, sorry, Tyler, wherever you're at, Tyler, because he teaches as well. Thirdly, Shane. Fourthly, yeah, that's you, Ian. You teach once in a while too. Okay? All of us who teach in here, we're going to be held to the highest account. Why? Because we know the truth. Our religion gives us the truth. And yet, it proves our guilt because we don't respond well to it. Look at verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. And he's hearkening back to Shema. That word here is Shema, the great Shema. Hear the words of God. Hear, O Israel. But he doesn't call him Israel. He calls him Sodom. Give ear to the teaching, and that word there in the Hebrew is Torah. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? See, they're going to say to him, you have God. You're the one that's put this law. We've got to go to temple. We've got to do sacrifices. We've got to do all these things because you are an evil God who asks all this stuff of us. But the response is, guys, I didn't ask you to do any of this. You don't understand the heart behind it. He says in verse 13, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Your new moon, your Sabbath, the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. In other words, he calls their fellowship sinful. That's a great church planning tactic. Welcome to sinful fellowship of Salem. Would you go there? No. He goes, you guys are iniquity laden. You're sinful. He says, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Why does he say it that way? Because guys, remember, he was already in relationship with them by grace. Long before the law came, he had saved them and brought them out of Egypt and he had carried them, the Bible says, on eagles' wings. And so when they were active in their sin and rebellion against God, it wasn't just them doing it, they were doing it as God carried them in the midst of their sin. Oh, that changes the picture so much, doesn't it? When I think that God is missing and I need to go my own way in order to protect myself, to do my own thing. And the reality is, is that he's carrying me that whole time because he loves me graciously so much. He says, when you spread out your hands, notice the picture with me, crying out in a prayer gathering, I will hide my eyes from you. This is the opposite of the blessing of the Lord's face shining upon his people. He says, even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? What does he see on those hands that are spread out to him? He says, your hands are full 
of blood. God is not in this for the sacrifices. And in fact, what he's saying here is you're killing animals for no reason. They were to be a people that showed God's justice and righteousness throughout the world. Yet the picture here, that, that phrase, your hands are full of blood. We miss this again, unfortunately, in the English because the blood word right there, it's the plural form of blood. In the Hebrew, it's the word not, not just dom, blood. It's domim. It's bloods. Your hands are full of much blood. We think of it as just hands with blood on it, but the reality, the picture of what he's painting here is rather than being the people of God's justice and righteousness, he pictures a man holding a bloody knife standing in the midst of a mass killing field drenched in the blood of his innocent victims. This is what sacrifices that do not have the heart of God look like to God. You see, the sacrificial system, the law, was given to those that were already in relationship with the Lord by his redemption, by grace, so that they might, not, uh, they might know how to behave in ways acceptable to him who had redeemed them. That same commentator, Moyer, he says this, the sacrificial system was given so that those who were committed to the life of obedience already might remain in the Lord's presence, notwithstanding their failures, and have recourse to mercy and forgiveness for their lapses from obedience. See, God knows that we are dust. Just as a father knows that their child will make mistakes and loves them anyway. He gave law. He gave sacrifice in order to redeem them in the midst of those brokenness. It's not out of relationship, in relationship, out of relationship, in relationship. It's all in relationship. It's like my kids. I love my kids. I will never leave them nor forsake them. And yet when they make mistakes, we have laws in our house. We rely on the sacrifice of Jesus to cleanse us from all sin. And we talk about that. And we rely on the law of repentance to go to the one whom you've harmed, Matthew 18, and reconcile. These laws keep Jesus in the center of our home. Not get us back into relationship, but stay in the midst of relationship. I want to ask you this morning, you can write this down. Are our religious actions a result of relationship or something we do to gain relationship? Are our religious actions a result of relationship or something we do to gain relationship? I'm going to be honest with you guys. When I woke up this morning... This is not to gain your, your uh, care either. It's just the way it was. I'd stayed up till 2.30 last night because I had my teaching to finish and I had a bunch of homework for seminary. I was about to go lay down in bed when one of our sons, uh, who usually gets croup around this time of year, woke up coughing. He was a preemie. Both of our twins were preemies. So he gets croup easily. So I took him outside, was standing outside with him about 2.30, 2 2.45, 3 o'clock in the morning, something like that. Finally put him down, went to bed, woke up at 6, ready and raring to come here. Nope. Lord, you have to be kidding me. That was what went through my mind. My nice warm bed, my beautiful wife over here, the house is silent for once in 24 hours, and I think, really? And then I started to think through what church is. My people. My family looking into God's Word, 
refreshment, redemption. And I thought, oh, horses couldn't tear me away. Now, that is honestly the thought process that went through my head. I wonder if some of us, we do the things we do because, ah, I got to do it if I want to get to heaven. (sighs) I guess I'll go to church again. I know he says don't forsake the gathering together, but I think I'm fine at home just practicing church by myself. No, guys, that's, that's not the truth. What are we doing it for? Why are we doing it? Because God loves us. He loves us so deeply. And he loves you, he loves me, and we get a chance to worship together as his people. We do it not because of religion, but because of relationship. So, in response to all these accusations, Hans, please, for the love of Jesus, please end on something positive. Here we go. (laughs) God's counsel. He finishes with God's counsel. And if you are pricked in your conscience, if you are convicted today, then here's God's counsel to you and honestly, folks, to me. Because even though I feel like I've grown in my walk a great deal in 37 years, I know I have a long way to go. And at any point in time, any one of these accusations lands squarely on me. And so I turn to God and I say, God, what's your counsel? And here's what he says through Isaiah. He says in verse 16, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Whoa, 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 Hans, he's talking about works there. Guys, remember, they weren't out of relationship. See, once you're in relationship with Jesus, it is on you to wash yourself. What? In the blood of Jesus that has already been freely and graciously given. He says, wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. See, Isaiah begins to tell us what will actually be effective in cleansing. All the Israelites were going in verse 11 and trying to do these sacrifices that were not cleansing them. And he says to us, here's what you do, guys. The first one is stop or repent. Decisively abandon all that you have known previously. Don't try and take the law of the world that you gained before you followed Christ into following Christ. Get rid of all of it. Every last piece of it. Jesus is not a cake topper to put on top of the cake of what you already know. He's not the cherry on top that will get you into heaven. He is truth, way, and life. Remove everything you've known. Secondly, learn. Learn his ways. Fill the void of what you've removed by devouring his word individually and corporately. Guys, not in terms of quantity necessarily, but in terms of what you're applying. It could be one principle that you gain from today, and man, you hammer it this week, trying to apply it in your life by following Jesus Christ. Learn his ways. Thirdly, seek his heart. In learning God's words, seek after his heart continually. And what is his heart, folks? It's always Righteousness, justice, correcting oppression, bringing justice to the fatherless, pleading the widow's cause. Loving people in his name. In the New Testament, Paul gives it to us in a much more poetic way than I ever could. In Romans 12 too, we just covered this a few months ago. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
The last thing here is not a question, it's a statement. I want us to be a people that apply this process of stopping, learning, seeking, and being changed to your walk with God. What do each one of us need to stop? What are each one of us learning and what are we seeking? And you might say, Hans, what about that last piece, to be changed? Well, that is where this wonderful section of Scripture, verses 18 through 20, comes in. And we'll finish there. He says, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. See, the blood, the bloodshed that was on the hands of the people was indelible. You could not get it off. It was like permanent marker. But God, the Father, Yahweh himself, comes to us, comes to the people of Israel, comes to his people and says, guys, you can be white as snow. You can become like wool. How? Look at what he says there. He says, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Guys, the result of that stop, learn, and seek is that change will come. Notice the order very clearly. We love to cling on to verse 18 as a verse about salvation. But guys, remember, they were already, in our verbiage, saved. They were already the people of God. They did not need any further grace to be in relationship. They had it. And he says, in the midst of that relationship, as my people, you're already my people. Grace has already been applied in setting you free. Then his people are to purposefully enter into partnership with him to stop what they learned in Egypt, learn the ways of God through the Torah, and seek his heart of justice and righteousness. It was a partnership. And as they pursued by their will, connecting with God's will, they would be changed. The result is that God will actually begin to change their nature. Wool is naturally white. Snow is naturally white. And we call this in the church world sanctification. See, you cannot be saved by anything you do. You cannot earn gracious relationship with God that is only given freely by his grace of redemption. And from that point, you don't wait for him to change you with nothing on your part. You enter into partnership with him. And you stop, you learn, you seek. And in the process, he, by his spirit, changes the nature of who you are, giving you a new heart and a new mind. Paul said this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, what? By his grace, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is through the partnership of God's will that initiated the gracious relationship and your will to respond in sanctification that will slowly but surely change you. See, each of the kings of Judah was so busy living a life for their own legacy, doing what they wanted, when they wanted, not under the submission to the king, that they neglected to leave any legacy other than their brokenness. As we step through this amazing book of written prophecy, we will see that Jesus the true king of Judah, lived his life as the suffering servant for his people. He lived his life to give his life for others. Jesus died on the cross, resurrected, spent the years of ministry that he did for you and for me. And his legacy as the true king 
is to not add brokenness to brokenness, but to restore what was broken. And the biggest question for us today as God's people is which legacy are we leaving corporately and individually? The Bible says we are called, each one of us, to be kings and priests. Is our legacy in the line of the earthly kings before us or in the line of the Father God and His Son, Jesus, the true King? We will see this constant call back to the Father throughout Isaiah to simply turn from rebellion in even the smallest of ways that we're convicted of and embrace the faithful love of the Father God and His kingdom. For it is His kingdom that gives us hope. When all the rebellion, the destruction, the lies fade away, we will have a king that governs His people. And that gives us hope because only then will grace and truth remain. And so let's ask ourselves this morning, if we are under any of these accusations, if so, we must repent and learn from him and seek his heart and be changed. And we can start today by proclaiming our allegiance to him.